In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another decision, uh, another decision, another edition of Drive Time Show this afternoon on the 3rd of March 2023 with myself, Kayyum. And today we're going to be talking about two interesting topics, as always. Um, the first topic from four o'clock uh, to five, we're going to be talking about immigration, a hot topic which is being discussed on all um, on all sides of the floor um, from a political perspective. Uh, it is uh, um, um, it is something that uh, politically most parties uh, are too afraid to really talk about or to deal with. Um, it is. Uh, um, it is the main focus. It's a main point. Uh, a lot of uh, populist, um, populist politicians, populist uh, commentators uh, tend to grab hold of in order to make a point. Immigration has always been, for the past few decades, a hot topic when it comes to politics within the Western Hemisphere. So that's going to be the topic that we're going to be talking about. And we're going to be talking to some guests who will be shedding some light on uh, um, the policies that we've had um, or we have at the moment or uh, policies that may come in over the course of the future. From five o'clock onwards, we're going to be talking about buildings. Um, uh, to be more specific, we're going to be talking about places of worship and the question um, that we're going to be asking is, do we need places of worship to keep the faith? Since pandemic, so many research and, and uh, uh, studies have shown different results in respect of people's faith, how some people have increased in faith, some people have lost it. A lot of people have said that they missed going to a place of worship. So the question does arise, and the question that we are asking is, do we really need a place of worship? What exactly does it do for an individual or for a community or uh, for society as a whole when they see a place of worship? That's something we will be discussing from five o'clock onwards. If you want to um, share your comments, we would love to hear from you. 0208 687 um, Or you can join us on our social media platforms at Voice of Islam UK. Or feel free to email us via our website address, which is www.voiceofislam.co.uk. But going on to the topic of the afternoon, which is immigration. So United Kingdom's labour market is under immense pressure and is desperate for workers in uh, the healthcare industry, in the farming industry, construction, hospitality being um, always being mentioned. According to statistics taken from an article published in The Guardian in England, care is short of 165,000 workers. Um, in health, 130,000, while half of the United Kingdom uh, building firms are short-staffed and a third of all UK firms say that they lack full complement of staff. I know within the hospitality industries, hotels are closing down, um, You know, coffee bars, bistros, all suffering because they don't have uh, adequate, trained, qualified staff. Um, 
be it from a skill level or even just from a numbers perspective, as um, I've, I've mentioned, th- hundreds and thousands of people are needed to fill the jobs that are sitting vacant. Um, and we haven't even mentioned the NHS yet um, because that's, you know, hundreds and thousands of jobs sitting empty, uh, sitting vacant, I should say, um, which desperately need to be filled. But there just is a shortage of qualified people who can fill them. UK's ageing population and tight labour market desperately demands an open-door policy, especially after Brexit. That is uh, the key word, isn't it? Desperately demands. And the question that arises, and that's the question we're going to be discussing, are we in a position to demand um, um, with the way things have panned out over the past half a decade, um, even if we were to demand are people going to listen? Are people going to comply? Do people even want to come and fill those vacant posts? The government has uh, been standing firm against immigration um, and uh, demonised those who could help, um, especially when it comes to refugees and immigrants. The wording that has been used in uh, tackling the issue about refugees and immigrants has been... Um, dire, has been sad, has been desperate. And the reason I say desperate is um, it's been a very, very long time that such negative um, language has been used to describe the plight um, of uh, of people who are in desperate need, who are, who are sacrificing their lives and risking their lives to get to safe, safer pastures and uh, instead of welcoming them with open arms or offering them, um, you know, a helping hand, we are uh, demonising, criminalising, um, treating them worse than, uh, than, than, than animals. A famous saying of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who was an exemplary head of state, reveals just how important it is for the leaders to treat those in need. The Holy Prophet said, There is no leader who closes the door to someone in need, one suffering in poverty, except that Allah closes the gates of heavens for him when he is suffering in poverty. That is going to be the point of discussion today, whether our homeland, United Kingdom, it needs an open-door policy. Its refugee diplomacy and Islam's take on such issues is something that we're going to ponder over and try to disseminate and to break down as to see if we can find some kind of middle ground. Nobody's saying, um, you know, there is a there is a easy solution. It is a very complicated topic, um, but we need an open mind. We need open hearts. So, if you do um, have a solution to uh, this this uh, dire circumstances, taking into account the fact that we as a country um, are in desperate need of people. We have so many vacant posts um, that nobody wants to talk about. Everybody wants to talk about full employment. Everybody wants to talk statistics. Everybody wants to spin. Well, spin this. We are talking about growth. Growth will only come if we can fill vacant posts, 
if we don't fill the vacant posts, um, those uh, industries will suffer. If industry suffers, that means there will be no growth. We are, we seem to be discussing and arguing against ourselves more than anything else. And yes, some of you might be thinking, isn't isn't it like uh, uh, an altruistic topic to discuss whether an open-door policy is something that will never happen? And you may be right. However, it is a starting point. It is a starting point, and we've got to find a solution somewhere down the line um, to... to um, have a viable immigration system. Instead of talking about, well, Australia has this or Canada has that, we always seem to be looking at other countries because, oh, they have such a successful um, immigration policy. Well, every country for themselves. Um, surely we must have enough intelligence and uh, um, enough uh, pioneering thoughts um, that uh, we can come up with our own um, we can come up with uh, our own immigration policy. Let's go and talk to our first guest of the afternoon. We have with us Maliha Tariq, who is an advisor at the, the Citizen Advice uh, Bureau in East End. Good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamualaikum and peace be on you, Maliha. Welcome, Salam. Jazakallah for having me on the show. Thank you for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Um, Maliha, what does your day-to-day role look like? And what kind of advice do you commonly get asked for from an immigration, asylum, refugee perspective? Okay, so um, firstly, my day-to-day role um, consists of advising clients on different issues. For example, if they come with benefits, housing, um, family, immigration, it, it varies a lot. Um, even if they don't have that issue and it's something that we can't deal with, we have agencies that we are in contact with that we can sign both out. So it just depends on whatever issue they come with, if we can or can't help them. Um, in terms of asylum seekers and refugees, um, nowadays we are getting a lot of advice on obviously how they can come to the UK. Um, for example, if they've come from a war-torn country such as Syria, now with the war going on in Ukraine, um, we have seen a rise in a lot of um, Ukrainian clients asking how they can come safely to the UK, or if they're already in the UK, how they can bring family members, whether that's um, husbands, wives, um, or whoever, to the UK to, to provide them for a, sp- a safe space as well. Maliha, you mentioned these two words safe passage i mean you your ukrainian clients or refugees from ukraine ask for um uh, safe passage or details about it uh, and of course everybody's aware there is a safe passage where or, or a route that uh, ukrainians can uh, make an application from is the same are you able to advise uh, the same route um to people for syria afghanistan iran iraq um, do they have something called a safe passage that uh, they can tap into? So um, at the moment, with clients that are coming from Syria and uh, Iran, Iraq, war-torn countries, we have a lot of questions that we have to ask just to make sure that they are coming safely to the UK. Obviously, we've seen on the news a lot about the, the migrants who are coming in little small boats with however many people. We have to make sure that um, 
basically the reasons why they are here um, and not that um, I know it may be a small minority trying to do it but not trying to abuse the system because then obviously that puts a whole um, label on people that are not trying to abuse the system so we really have to be careful the way we ask questions Mm -hmm. Um, mainly just asking them what is the reason that you're here do you want to work do you have family sometimes they do feel a bit scared as to why we're asking but um, I think that's just our procedure that we have questions that we need to make sure that we have the answer to so one we're not giving them the wrong advice and then two obviously we're making sure that they are coming safely into the UK. How has Brexit and the cost of living affected the number of refugees or immigrants asking for help and how has the nature of the advice you give changed and how how has and have these two um, events, um, Brexit and the cost of living crisis, have you seen a change in the number of people who are actually coming in uh, seeking advice um, from uh, asylum seekers, refugees, um, people who are uh, you know uh, migrating? Yeah. Um, okay. So, firstly, with I'll go with the cost of living at the moment because that's a bit easier to advise on. Because mm-hmm. um, I know in a lot of um, other countries they don't necessarily have as much of a cost of living crisis as we do in the UK. I mean, there is it is still there, but it's not from the clients that we have spoken to. It's not as much as it is for those living in the UK. So a lot of them don't really ask on the cost of living crisis, but mainly those. From war-torn countries, obviously now we are we know about the earthquake that has happened in Turkey and Syria. A lot of clients don't have um, means that they did have before that disaster happened, and obviously they need to find somewhere where they can even get shelter, they can find work, they can start earning for their families. So they do ask us questions about that. Um, in terms of Brexit, it has changed quite a bit because. Um, now even clients coming from European countries, um, they're only allowed to stay here for a, a six-month period as a visitor. If they do want to work, then um, they have to apply for a clearance exam, and then obviously that makes it harder, especially for clients who don't necessarily know English. Do you get a lot of people asking for advice about work? And do, I mean, maybe it's an unfair question, Um but just a general take on, on when you're advising people, um, yeah. do most people want to work and kind of have, want to have the opportunity to um, provide for their own means? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I don't think it's an unfair question, <laughs> but yeah. um, I, I think we, were, we are actually surprised that a lot of clients do want to work because um, they are willing to do the jobs that, um, if I can say that, a lot of people here are not willing to do Hmm. and they are very honest with us when we do speak to them I think first of all we have to establish that relationship with them for them to be that honest to us and say we literally just want to work and make a living for us and our family and by them saying we even if we can do such small jobs such as being a a cleaner to sweeping the the roads you know obviously a lot of these jobs not people living in Britain want to do at the moment which is why obviously we're facing this this shortage of workers um, I think we just have to be honest with them and they have to be honest with us and we tell them that that you need to be honest with us why you're actually here because we're not here to judge you so what's what's the normal reaction when you tell them they can't work it is frustrating because they've been through so much trying to get to the UK first so we need to talk them through the procedures but then they are quite understanding 
because we are trying to help them. Mm-hmm. And some, some people just need that push that, okay, we, we are here to try and help you. It's it's okay. Like sometimes they get frustrating and it's understandable. But I think as advisors, we just have to kind of calm down ourselves and tell them that we are here to help you, but it's just going to take longer than you might think. Now, do you think the current policies around immigration, which are forever changing, um, but yeah. the policies around asylum... Um, are favourable for migrants, refugees, or the asylum seekers? Um, or, um, or, or is the word favourable the wrong, wrong thing to be asking? Should we should be? I think more. I would say, are they just um, for yeah. for migrants and refugees and asylum seekers? So personally, I don't think they're fair because there's just so much that they need to do to get here. And if you think about it, someone who if you I mean, I don't want to sound judgmental or anything, but if you think about an average person coming from a country from, say, okay, let's take Syria, for example, they would not know as much English, if very little, um, and they won't have family there that's able to translate for them. So if you're then telling them, okay, you need to pass a a life in the UK test, you need to do a clearance exam, and it's all an application that they need to fill out, a lot of them not knowing how to do it because you can't get these forms in different languages it's specific it's specifically in english and then obviously if you're going to have to pay somebody to help you that then costs money which they don't have and then again obviously it just goes back to them finding it ten, telling them that it's going to take them longer than you think and some of them don't do the research before they call us so they don't really know the rules themselves are these people or is there a policy available or a provision available where they can learn English? Um, I mean, we, they have the Life in the UK test, where, but obviously they have to revise for that and they they need the means to, to get these sources to help them revise for it. Mm-hmm. Or, um, I mean, we have immigration solicitors available at our bureau that um, can also advise on these things, but the main things are passing these life in the UK test to stay here or filling out applications to get settled status in the UK, which again is in English. So we go back to the point where if these forms were translated and there, we are campaigning for this to try and get some forms at least translated in um, specific languages such as Arabic, Urdu um, and a lot of European languages. So it does help clients that don't know English. Now, you are an advisor, a citizen advice, and of course you yourself get updated on a regular basis. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to give advice to these people. Yeah. How often does the, the the government provide up-to-date information to citizen advice? Like um, with the Prime Minister now saying, well, the la- people who have claimed asylum in the past three months are going to be fast-tracked because of, yeah. um, you know... Um, do do you kind of get this information immediately, and does it help um, or um, raise the hopes of people um, when they hear something like fast tracking? Um, so to answer your first question, we have we have a national citizens advice, um, and then it's broken up into specific bureaus depending on our bar. So at East End, we um, we come under three boroughs, which are Newham, Hackney, and Tower Hamlet. And weekly, we get updates from National Citizens Advice that is just sent out to everybody. Um, it's also posted on their social media pages, which we all are advised as advisors to to follow and look at regularly. 
Um, so we do get updates on a weekly basis of things that are changing. Um, we also have regular meetings with our um, senior management teams who also update us. And if there is anything urgent, they will um, send us an email or they'll update us regularly. So in terms of that, we do get um, we do get updated quite regularly. Um, and to answer your second question, it, it does get their hopes up, but um, we try not to raise their hopes too much just in case it then turns out that um, something has gone wrong and like during their application, even though they have been put through to the fast track service, if there are mistakes in the application, it then has to be returned. So we do advise them that when they are filling out applications to get it double and triple checked just to make sure that it is exactly what they want it to be and so it can just get put through more quicker. But um, we don't tend to raise their hopes too much just because it's immigration and it's quite difficult to advise them. Finally, you are on the front line. Um, government uh, advisors and researchers and people who do all these studies, they always come up with synopses and they always come up with ideas about what they think um, is required um, to assist migrants, refugees and asylum seekers. As a person who works on the front line, are policies made by the government in line with what you see and, and, um, and, and deal with um, every day? Um, I don't think so at the moment um, because it's what what they're saying on the news. It's not what it is actually in on the front line. Actually. And how frustrating is it when you hear the news and you think, no, that's not true. <laughs> it's re- it is really frustrating um, because I mean it's it's only like a minute detail that they're saying about what's actually a really big picture um, and. I think maybe if some ministers were to ask us as advisors on the front line what is actually going on or if they were to spend some time with the, any citizens' advice or any other um, refugee and migrant charities, they would know how hard it is and how hard we're trying to work to try and get these people into the UK safely, um, to help them earn a living, to even help them apply for benefits is so tough if they haven't got recourse to apply for benefits. So even something as additional as applying for benefits, if you haven't got the means to do so, it's a long process to try and change all the status, to get them to apply for benefits and get them into work. It is a long process and it is really tough and I don't think the policies at the moment are living up to that. Awesome. Maliha Tariq, thank you so much for taking time out for the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Wish you a fantastic weekend ahead. May peace no be problem. with you. Jazakallah. Welcome. Welcome. There we have it, um, Prime Minister. You heard it, Home Secretary. You heard it from the front line. The policies are not in line with what is really required. So maybe, maybe speak to the charities, speak to citizen advice, speak to the people who are dealing with um, these people who are coming in uh, desperate situations and looking um, looking for not a free hand. We heard it there firsthand. They want jobs. We have jobs. Why don't we vet the, 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 the people coming in and we, when we know that people have um, a skill set? Let's put them into work. They want to work. They don't want free hands. This notion, this narrative that gets 
bandied about everywhere that they want a free, uh, you know, they want a free ride. Not true. But let's go and talk to our next guest of the afternoon. We've got with us Abdullah Nofal, who is a political and economic analyst who's currently working as Special Business Support Officer on demand at TERN, T-E-R-N, and has had eight years' experience working with international organisations such as International Red Cross and the United Nations. Good afternoon, welcome, assalamu alaikum, and peace be on you. Assalamu alaikum, brother, how are you? Wa alaikum peace be on you, alhamdulillah, thank you uh, for asking. Um, and thank you for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Uh, Abdullah, please tell the listeners, firstly, what T-E-R-N, TERN, is, and what is the aim and the objectives and the purpose of uh, TURN? Okay. Yeah, thank you, brother. Thank you for having me on the show also. Uh, and yeah, TURN is uh, my organization. We actually try to support refugees and help them thrive by their own idea. Uh, in general, we help refugees to find employment, but we do it in different methods. Like we don't uh, help the refugee to find job, but we help them to create a job uh, through support them by their idea. What that means, we support refugees to start their own business. And instead of being working for someone, they will be the business owner, they will be the businessman and businesswoman who can support other people and help them finding employment. And yeah, in general, our, uh, uh, our mission is to have like an ecosystem where refugee and asylum seekers can come and grow and uh, find an opportunity and create an opportunity using their talent and their idea uh, and find the right environment and the right place where they can grow. It sounds so fantastic when you put it that way, Abdullah. Is there such thing as that environment that you talk about that is possible for us to create where we can welcome asylum seekers, refugees, you know, um, and, and these people who, you know, are fleeing desperate situations. Are we actually in a place? Do we have the will to create that environment? Uh, honestly, like our organization is like first of the organizations they start working in this uh, method. Uh, and we are like a small team. And through our work day, uh, like today, we see the change we, we made. Like we see the impact we live on uh, other people's lives with a small budget, with the small resources. I mean, we cannot change the system because at the end of the day, like, there's the government responsibility. But we can be, like, an example for uh, such a thing. All what we need to do, again, we need cooperation from the civil society organization, from the local community, and the government to create this environment, which I believe is achievable when we all cooperate to achieve it. Now, we just, I mean, I don't know if you were listening to our first guest, uh, Maliha, who deals with um, um, refugees and migrants on, on, on a face-to-face, on a front line. And, and she was telling us about how um, a lot of these people who come, they still want to work. They don't want free hand. They want to earn um, their keep. But the government doesn't allow them to work. Firstly, I would like to know, why is it that the government doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't allow refugees and, and asylum seekers to work? Because surely that benefits the UK economy, because if they work, they will pay tax. 
if they work, they will not have to rely on social welfare benefits, which they get accused of all the time. So what is the reason um, um, and why does the government have this stance on their policy? Yes, uh, honestly, I mean, I cannot answer why the government do that because it makes no sense at the end of the day. Why you prevent someone from working? I mean, have the right to work is just like any basic right. And according to like the human rights uh, uh, convention, like you have the right to live, you have the right for food, and work is the same level. It's just because without work, sometimes you 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 lose your dignity without having the right to work in some country. You make these people so vulnerable. Uh, like I'm gonna give you like an example. When I moved to UK, I'm originally from Syria, and I was looking for a job. And when I move here, I have the right to work and I have the paper. But through some of my connection, someone sent me to local market in Shepherdsbush. The guy believed because I'm from Syria and I'm new, I don't have the right uh, documentation. And he wanna pay me like four pounds per hour. Yeah. And he wants they to, wanna take advantage. Exactly. He wanna take advantage of you because he he believes you are a salient seeker, you need job, you are desperate to find job and the government doesn't allow you to work. Again, what the government do and back these people and this leave these people vulnerable without the protection from exploitation from business owner who's just looking for cheap uh, labor. Hmm. And honestly that day I say for sure I say no because again, I, I was like in different context. I was in different situation. I was not so desperate for a job. But when I look in the shop, there was around 15 people. Mostly they are, they look Syrian. And I believe no one take or get more than like five pounds per hour. When I think about it, and that was like the first shock for me when I moved to this country. I left Syria. We were looking for a place where is like a fair opportunity, where there is a law. And then you came to UK, you come to London, and you're shocked by the system. To prevent people from work, how do you expect these people will survive? Most of the refugees or the asylum seekers who move to UK, they spend everything they have to get here. They, I mean, that the trip, even an illegal way, can cost between 10,000 pounds to 20,000 pounds. And all these people, they spend everything they have to come here, and then they have family back home. They want to make money at least to, to send some money back home. They won't make money to survive here, to have food on the table here. And then the government, without like logic, they say, okay, you don't have the right to work. And then what will happen? They don't think about like a legal market or illegal stuff because this is the only option they will have. Most definitely. Um, Brother Abdullah, tell me, there, there is this, there is this um, suggestion that um, migrants, when they come here, asylum seekers come here, they disappear in the system. And a lot of people um, who are not on the system are hiding in this country or working in the black market. And to control this, um, um, to, to control this element of people who... Um, are are hiding, they are suggesting tagging um, of migrants. Do you think it's fair and justifiable um, that uh, th- that uh, you know um, th- that this this suggestion is being made? 
with Again, the G- I mean, GBS, I mean, GPS tagging. I mean, personally, yeah. I, I have an opinion on it. But um, what's your take on this, brother? Yeah. Again, the government trying solving one issue by creating another issue. I mean, when you treat these people like this way, from the beginning, you are not given like safe passage because if they are with the risk coming through the sea with his family, with his with his kids, and every day there is people dying to to this country. And you don't give them safe measures, and then when they arrive here, you still you treat them like they are criminal without mm. knowing their story, without the right judgment, and you want to tag them with UBS like you really treat them like are criminals, like you criminalize them without having a clear view of point on their situation. Without. I mean, yeah, without you having this, and again, no one coming here because they want to free food. No one coming here because they're looking for a free accommodation. They're coming here for looking for a better life for them and their, uh, their family. They're coming here. They want to work. They want to establish a new life. But also, you want to give them away. Uh, and honestly, like from my work with my organization, every day, and most of them, they have their own business. They start from scratch. And now they're hiring people from the local community. Brilliant. All what they need, a small bush. All what they need, someone guide them in the system. All what they need, and for sure, they can have a good impact in the economy. In fighting them and treat them this way. It's a terrible line, Brother Abdullah, but I have to ask you this final question. You talked yes. about TURN being a an independent um, uh, organization. Who's, who funds you? Is it self-funded? Do you get funding from the government? Who funds the 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 the, the uh, your organization to assist um, these uh, um, asylum seekers and immigrants and uh, and uh, um, refugees. I mean, we are like a social enterprise. Okay. And and we get support from other like a private company. One of our partners is Ben and Jerry, for example. Uh, eBay, yeah, eBay. We try to create this partnership with this like a private business and try to support refugees through us. So if individuals and people who are listening, if they like the idea and if they want to support you, how? what can they do? I mean, they uh, they can come to our website and we have like a WhatsApp number on the website. You can communicate with our team and there is always a way to find us online and you can communicate with us. Do you have a website uh, address? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, like www.weartem.org. Uh, there you go. Mm. You've heard it. If you want advice, if you want to assist, feel free to to look it up um, and uh, and uh, and see if you can um, assist uh, this this uh, wonderful um, organization who are looking to uh, give independence to asylum seekers, refugees. Brother Abdullah, may may God Almighty reward your efforts. In, uh, in, in trying to assist um, um, all these people who are coming from desperate situations. Um, may you have a fantastic weekend. May peace be with you, brother. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all your efforts also uh, telling the viewers this story. Wonderful. Thank you for taking time out for us, Abdullah. Have, a, have a fantastic Bye. evening. Peace be with you, brother. Bye. Bye. Bye.
And there we heard it. Um, you know, Brother Abdullah was telling about how his own story, um, you know, he, he is here, he is allowed to work, um, yet unscrupulous people in this country. We talk about how there are unscrupulous people in France and in, in other countries and they're taking advantage. What, you know, the system needs to identify and take action against unscrupulous people in this country who are taking advantage and they're abusing the rights of refugees and asylum seekers and paying things like £5 an hour. That's, you know, we have people who, are, who refuse to work on minimum wage. And but they know that the desperation of asylum seekers and refugees that they will they want to work and they want to earn money and they push people into such a desperate corner that they would agree to work at a measly five pound an hour um, to to and some of you might be thinking wow it's five pound five pound it's five pound yes it's illegal and that's the point it is illegal. We live in a country where there is a minimum wage. And if you want to offer someone, if your intention is 100% correct, and if you really want to assist people in climbing the ladder in, in, and kind of recreate a life, then you pay them at least the minimum wage. You know, there, is a, there was an article published in the Financial Times titled, Brexit Could Be Reversed Here. Um, how mentions uh, it mentions that the referendum held in 2016 for Britain to leave uh, to, to leave the U, uh, EU, now also known as Brexit, was sold as a way of controlling immigration and improving the NHS. But the NHS is now in far worse shape than it was in 2016. And you know, in my head, I was thinking um, over the past uh, week or so, our Prime Minister has gone to Northern Ireland and he's made this fantastic deal, and then in his speech. He was, I have never seen the Prime Minister so excited. He was like, you know, it, it seemed like, uh, you know, that he had drunk all that crate of Coke that was behind him. It, it was really a, an event which looked like it was being sponsored by Coke because the, the amount of Coca-Cola that was there was amazing because he was, he, was, he was buzzing. And then he realised, it seemed like when he said it's the best thing uh, when he talked about free trade and talked about how Northern Ireland is the only country in the world that has that benefit, I think the light bulb moment came there and then where the Prime Minister realised, hold on, we had that. We gave it away. We abused it. And now Northern Ireland has it. And I'm thinking we are heading down a road where everyone, all the political commentators, everyone that we think of, are uh, saying that it's a foregone conclusion next year there will be an election and next year um, the government will have um, or will suffer a defeat um, which hasn't been seen for for centuries in respect of the Conservative Party. Um, some have even said it will completely destroy it. And the question that I pose with the excitement of the Prime Minister when he realised that freedom of trade and freedom of movement or customs union is him, these are his words itself, is, is, is remarkable, is beautiful, is fantastic. Will Conservatives ever get into such a corner that he will say, well, okay, you know what, I won't go, I'm going to join, I'm going to kind of renegotiate this, uh, this, 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 uh, this treaty with EU. Um, 
I'm going to agree to free movement. I'm going to agree to free trade. And the question does come to mind, will that turn the pendulum? Will that make a difference to the state um, of, uh, um, of, of our country? Can we take a step backwards? Um, because if we do have freedom of movement, a lot of things change. We still go back to... Um, we, we will go back to some of the laws that have been created in the EU, uh, which seem to be a lot more fairer um, than what is being offered to um, our um, our brothers and sisters who are coming from across um, different parts of the world uh, trying to escape desperate situations. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe we are... Um, Maybe when these people do come, um, we can kind of treat them in a, in a much more humane way than we seem to be doing at the moment. But to shed some light on this, um, when we talk about uh, accommodating refugees and immigrants, of course, when they do come here, they need to be housed somewhere. And um, in recent weeks and months, hotel accommodation has been kind of highlighted all over the place and the, the, the extreme um, right-wing-minded people who think um, that uh, it's an abuse of the system um, by, by uh, you know, waste of money, um, kind of accommodating refugees and immigrants in hotels. Let's go and talk to someone who works um, within a community housing charity. Let's go and talk to Jacob Berkson, who's a caseworker with community housing charity, Thousand for Thousand. Good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamu and peace be on you, Jacob. Alaikum salam. Kima Mubarak. Uh, likewise to you, Jamal Barak, to you. Um, Jacob, please tell our listener what uh, your community housing charity, Thousand for Thousand, what it does, it, what does it actually do? Okay, so for me, well, the, the very short answer is we try to provide homes for people who have been made homeless by the government's uh, hostile environment, the immigration rules in the UK. But we try to do that in quite a unique way what we want to do is is mobilise the community. We put out the challenge to the community back in 2016 and said, you know, we're rich enough here in Brighton to make homes for people uh, out of our small change. So we ask everyone in the community to give us a small amount. Each month we started with a pound, but now we'll, we'll take any amount. Uh, and we pull that collectively and, and rent, rent houses, rent rooms for people who are otherwise unable to access them because they've, they're claimed asylum, they can't work, they can't claim benefits, or their visa's expired, or what have you. Now, um, so, so, so what that means is, just for the benefit of the listener, you are actually acquiring properties or renting properties on the private sector yeah. um, to accommodate um, refugees. So the accommodation isn't coming from the local authority or central government. Um, no, absolutely not. And, and are, are your, is your work... And the rent being paid on the property being funded by the government? No, no, absolutely not. We don't take anything. So, who pays the rent for the refugees? The, the community, the, out of our recurring donations. And and how Anyone successful? Can give us, how successful? Well, I, I think reasonably successful. We have a monthly income just under four thousand a month. We're renting rooms for four people. Out of that. Uh, and, and then there's a number of other people we're which which areas are you predominantly covering um areas which right. are more closer to um uh, closer to where the immigrants and the migrants are 
um, kind of arriving, or are we talking London? Are we talking? Um, um, it's know. Brighton. We're based in Brighton. Um, okay. So uh, historic. When we started, there weren't so many. Uh, it wasn't what they call a dispersal area. So the Home Office put people in accommodation uh, no choice basis around the country. It's usually in some of the poorest parts of the country, but the accommodation is the cheapest, and the, the landlords can make the most profit. Uh, are, are, you dealing, are you dealing? With, are you dealing with? Are you dealing with single people, families, or is it a mixture of everyone? Oh, it's a mixture of everyone. I mean, we've got uh, we've got four single people that are paying rent for. We're also providing a house for uh, on the Afghan resettlement scheme. So actually, that money does come from a housing benefit because they've got they've got leave to remain. Uh, that's family. We've housed family of asylum seekers from Sudan. In the past, we've housed a single mum from Nigeria with three kids. Well, In that the was the question that I was going to ask. Um, you, you you just mentioned the family who've got remain to leave, and so they are entitled to housing benefit. Yeah. But what benefits are refugees entitled to? Because this narrative that mainstream media and right-wing media and even people with bigoted mindsets keep throwing um, everywhere is, oh, they, they, they're taking free money. What money are they entitled to when they come in as an asylum seeker? And they have not they have not received any remain to leave. Yeah, yeah, and it's red. Yeah, right. So um, there is there is no entitlement to anything uh, if you can satisfy the Home Secretary that you're destitute or likely to be destitute. Then you can get some subsistence support, which at the moment is if you're in if you're in not an hotel, if you're in asylum accommodation, you know, in a, a room in a house, that's forty pounds a week, and then your housing costs are covered. If you're in the hotel and you've been there more than six weeks. You get somewhere between eight and nine pounds a week, I think, well. at the moment. So tiny amount. Just basically, the court said they had to be able to get phone credit and uh, and bus travel. I mean, not that you can put much phone credit and bus travel with your eight nine pounds a week, but, but there you go. Um, now, the topic that we're discussing is: Should UK have an open door policy? Yes. What's your take on that? <laughs> oh, well, I think it should. Look, my family's Jewish, uh, and when I was growing up, they, they, they're all over the world. I mean, they moved. That's what we did. That's what that's what people do. Uh, it's it's when they arrived in this country in 1900 or so, you saw all the same rhetoric written about Jews as you see written about the about arrivals today from Albania or whatever. Hmm. Uh, uh, but we saw at the last election, um, I think rather scandalously and unfairly, uh, it, you know, this huge upset that people were deemed to be anti-Semitic. You know, well, my family went a threat in 1900 and. And they finally learned that now. And we saw the same horror with the Windrush when they arrived in in the, in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. And then when the Windrush scandal happened just a few years ago, people were rightly very, very upset that, that their neighbours were being and friends were being, being kicked out of the country. Hmm. So it seems to me immigration is not now and has never been a problem. In fact, it's just been a joy. And that fundamentally, for me, movement is freedom. The right to move is, is a fundamental human right. To go and build your life, build a future for yourself. I, don't, I, I personally feel the state has no, no right to, to prevent people seeking to build a future for themselves. Where they, where they choose, for them and their family. That's, that seems a fundamental human right that we should be absolutely now, clear about and, and behind. You, you work directly with the families and, and individuals who are seeking... Um, new pastures, not because of choice, because they are yeah. escaping desperate situations. Yeah. How, how many of them want to work? 
And how many oh, of everybody. them? And how many are happy with the free hand, as everybody keeps saying that they are coming here for? No, nobody's happy. Nobody's happy with what they're getting because it's awful, and and they all they all want to work. And I mean, let me tell you, around the only people, the people that are happy with it, are are Serco, G4S, Clear Springs, the landlords who are who are making money hand over this out of this stuff. The government the government contracts for housing. Asylum housing are worth four billion pounds over ten years. Enormous amount of money. The, the accommodation that's given is substandard usually. Well, I'm glad you mentioned area. that word, substandard. Um, why why aren't these landlords subject to um, the same standards as in private sector lettings where electricity, gas certificates, uh, EPCs, um, you know, um, treatment yeah. for mould? Why, why aren't these landlords being penalised? Because in the end, there's nobody, there's nobody holding them to account. But, but almost, I, th- I think a huge amount of what's going on is unlawful, uh, but it's it's unlawful left, right, and centre, and so you're, it's like you know, it's whacking the mole or whatever they say. Hmm. We, we, uh, you know, our hands are full bringing challenges against the use of a hotel in Brighton. A hotel is then that's owned by a man called Nicholas Hoogstraten, who is notorious, extremely right wing. It's been accused of, of, of manslaughter and murder on, on at least one occasion. Ooh, think, Jacob, Jacob, you can't make you can't you can't make accusations like that on radio when he's not well, here to protect himself or well, to defend okay, himself. But I mean, it's, it's you know, those are record. those are alleged. That way, it's alleged, allegedly, allegedly. Those yeah, are allegedly. allegedly. He was taken um, to court for it. I mean, he was. He was. But but those those are those are not those are not remarks that you can make to someone who's actually rightly or wrongly. Is looking okay. to house people. You know that. Where where there's a right, there's a where you know. Okay, okay. I I, I withdraw the remark and I, I avoid it. Thank you so but much. Are, Thank you so much. Are, Thank you for withdrawing it. You know, but, but these are the people that are making are making the money. Look, it, it, we live in a capitalistic society. People will make money, but yeah, but. Thank you so much for taking time out and and uh, and coming to the drive time show and highlighting the plight that yeah. the refugees and and the immigrants are facing in 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 terms of of being housed and and may god almighty reward you for the work <laughs> that you do in in assisting people in need i wish you a fantastic yeah. weekend may peace be with you, you. Take, peace thank you okay. jacob bye, bye, bye. thank you jacob uh, that was uh, jacob berkson um with a very strong opinion um and uh, but he is at the front line assisting people in uh, um in in desperate need um and maybe we need more people like um, Jacob and Abdullah and Maliha, who are giving up their time, um, but uh, in in looking to assist people and giving back, um, you know, um, to 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 society, um, and assisting people who are coming here uh, to look for 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 a better life, um, not because they choose to. Ideally, they want to go back home to where they were born. They had good lives, but which were destroyed by the narratives and the false um, liberation um, um, motives of the Western governments who played politics with other people's homes. Um, And, uh, you know, there's another debate we can have maybe in the future. The Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, once stated, the example of the believers in their affection, mercy and compassion for each other is that of a body. When any limb aches, the whole body reacts with sleeplessness and fever. It is true that every democracy faces political tension over immigration. 
However, governments should try their efforts on establishing peace in war-torn countries rather than fueling it. They should show compassion towards the distressed and also consider how their own nation could benefit from immigration. We see the example of Germany that welcomed both Turkish and Syrians despite opposition because it needed labour. However, we see that in our home, Britain, is trapped in its regulatory swamp of refugee diplomacy, political tension, key worker entitlement, etc., etc., etc. Britain should treat those tens of thousands of people who want to benefit British economy as respectable rather than treating them as a semi-criminal class. And please, people should remember, decision makers need to remember that, yes, um, you are people... Um, in, in, in government, you have been chosen by the people to govern them and to lead them. Um, but do remember, one day, everyone has to go back to their creator and everyone is answerable to someone above. Please forgive any shortcomings on our part. We'll be back after the five o'clock news and we're going to be talking about do we need places of worship to keep faith? Join us after the five o'clock news. Now, one thing that stands out about Hazrat Usman radiallahu anhu, and Hazur has spoken about this, he, he mentions his incidences of generosity and compassion and, and love for the brothers and sisters of, of Islam. Where the Muslims in Medina were again suffering from a famine and, and, and a drought, Hazrat Usman radiallahu anhu, he, at this time, he is returning from a business trip. And he has so many different goods with him. And the, and the, and the merchants and the businessmen of, of Medina approach him at that time and they say to him, look, at this time, we can all get together. We can happily, easily boycott all of the residents of Medina. We can bump up the prices of our goods and we can make a huge profit because these people are desperate. They have no choice but to buy from us. Hazrat Usman, anhu, when he heard this, all of the goods that he had initially planned to sell to the people of Medina, he distributed them amongst all of the people, free of cost, without any recompense from anybody else. Now this was his generosity and his compassion for the people living there at that time. Welcome back to Friday Drive Time with myself, Kayum. And joining me for this hour is Brother Raza. Assalamu alaikum. It's Friday. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's Friday. It is Friday. It is Friday. How are you doing, brother? I'm always good. Now that you're here, even better. <laughs> what a compliment. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Okay, we have been talking the first hour about um, immigration. Um, and we did kind of conclude, mm. but um, now that you're here, can I take your um, quick opinion before we move on to the topic of the hour? Should we have an open-door policy? Or is that altruistic? Or is that... Uh, what's the word Brother Daniel always uses? I always forget. <laughs> Euph- no, not euphoria. Utopia. Utopia. Yeah, is it a utopian concept? Yeah, well, I think, it's, it, again, depending on the country, depending on the circumstance, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. But I think I'm, I'm, again, always looking at these things from, from the religious point of view. And if you look at the history of Islam... Um, it, it, the, the first migrants from Mecca to Abyssinia, the first migrants from Mecca to Medina, was kind of an open door, open arm policy, wasn't it? It was, but I'll tell you why I'm always interested in your perspective on this, because Germany set the example. I take my house yeah. to my Angela Merkel. Yeah. She, had yeah. forced, she thought 10, 15, 20 years ahead. And you have come and gone. 
and to Germany regular mm-hmm. basis. Um, I, I I get where you come from. Have they this, been successful? This, this fear, yeah. That and and she was criticized left, yes. right, front, center, wasn't it? But she didn't care. That, oh, that she didn't care about the political mistake. ramifications. And this wasn't only from people outside Germany. This was from people within Germany. Germany. AFD. AFD. I mean, this is the car that they that they rode on. This is this is the the thing that brought them into the parliament. That's right. Or on onto the forefront. But you have to think about, as you said, she was thinking ahead. Yep. She if thought you, of the nation, not the policy of the party. If you look at it now, yeah. it kind of went its natural course. Yep. And you don't have those huge issues that you have now. People have settled in. Those who wanted to stay, they stayed. A lot of them have moved back again and they left. And it's kind of... I mean, they don't have the issues that we have. Well, workforce. I was going to uh, well, exactly the only country in Europe who's not screaming, "Oh, we've got labor shortages," hmm. is Germany. And when I was growing up, I, I, I'm telling you because there's always this issue about um, uh, retirement. There's always about the issue about, um, you, you know, what, what is that called? Um, the the triangular society, or what is that called? Mm-hmm. Like if you have too many old people, but not enough young people to I know what you mean to pay into uh, the pension system, right? Yep. Yep. This has always been an issue for Germany. In Germany, yes. But now that but they've you, got a fantastic pension, or oh, they used to have a fantastic pension. They system. used to. But now that you have, you don't have that problem where you don't have enough people to pay into that pension system. system. That's right. That's again, th- there's ramifications of this, right? So of if course. you have the older generation not set up and not safe and secured after they have worked for like sixty-five or seventy years. What are you giving them? Mm. I mean, what is the state giving them after working your entire life for 50 years or 60 years even in some cases and you don't have a secure future? That's 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 not what the state is supposed to do, right? I mean, you should have some sort of security and safety in your um, later life. And that's something that they have always struggled with. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And from me, as a personal take, personal opinion, I think, look, Politically, you can have different opinions. But I think politics is something that should come secondary. And I don't mean secondary that it's less important. Mm. I am talking about when we know there are people who are desperate to get to safety. Let's let's get them in. Let's get them housed. Um, Let's get them. Let's get them in a safer place. Let's get humanity to the forefront. Let's think and talk and, and, and develop humanity first. Yep. And, and, then of, and then play the politics. Yes, of course. That's what it is. You know, it's it's to me at the moment, you know, politics is at the forefront. Humanity is actually disappearing. Yeah. We're actively looking to abolish human rights legislation. So that should kind of, um, it should trigger alarm systems yeah, yeah. in people's minds in this country. That a country which was known for uh, its human rights, hmm. historically, suddenly is now looking to um, kind of dilute, water down um, human rights legislation. And something yeah, we were talking about, Brother Daniel, he always brings this argument as well. It's not an argument, but it's a question that I have seen. I'm asked to so many people, look, it should, shouldn't it be the same kind of treatment for all? Yes. It yes. doesn't matter. Like, we have come to a point... Again, I'm not ashamed of saying that. It mm. needs to be justice and equality yes. needs to be there. Yep. So if one rule applies for our friends from the UK- Ukraine, the same rule should apply to 
people from other war-torn countries. Yes. People who have fled conflict. It shouldn't matter what color your eyes or your hair or mm. your geographical location is. It matters is that everyone is a human being. In the first place. With that note, we are going to move on to the second topic of the hour. And what we're discussing over the next 50 minutes is religion. We are Voice of Islam. Do we need a place of worship, Brother Azhar, um, to keep faith? Um, but before you answer any of that, when you drive past a beautiful cathedral, mm. church. Have you been to Spain? I've been to Spain, yes. Beautiful architecture. Yeah. Wonderful. Mosques that used to be churches yeah, and yeah, churches yeah. that used to be mosques. Yeah. And then a building which has got uh, Arabic um, um, written on the walls that already has got, you know, it's a mix and match. Yeah. Do you think faith or do you think beautiful architecture? Or do you uh, think both? I, I think I, I think both. Hmm. But you cannot help but think about sometimes when I do go inside and I see just like a handful of people in a corner actually utilizing that place of worship for the reason it was built hmm. and everybody else just roaming around taking pictures I mean, it tourists. becomes a tourism it, be it becomes a tourist attraction mm. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that you don't want to have these places of worship exclusively for the worshippers exclusively for those people who belong to that religion or who affiliate themselves with that religion but that should not be the minority mm. it should be it should, it should be, be the majority. majority I mean if you want to have People come and take pictures and whatnot. That, by all means, that's more than welcome. I mean, we do this in every mosque that we have. But if it's the other way around, it's probably defeating the purpose. And that's what what makes me. Um, it's 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 a bit sad to see, hmm. right? It doesn't matter which religion it is, but it, it's a bit sad to see that. True, mosques, synagogues, churches, temples—they all serve one purpose. Or they're supposed to, as Brother Rodas yeah. said. The purpose <clears throat> is worship and pray. Now, all the beliefs and methods of worship may vastly differ, but the one constant is the element of faith and spirituality attributed to these buildings. So when you do look at these different buildings which uh, promote a different faith or they, they belong to a different faith, the thought that comes to mind or should come to mind is peace. It's a place of peace. It's a place of tranquility. Mm. It's a place of respect. Mm. This raises important questions. Can a relationship with God solely be built within the four walls of a mosque or a church or a synagogue or a temple? Why are structures for, for worship needed when God can be found within? That's a very good question. It is. It is. Um, something we will kind of tackle later on. The Holy Quran beautifully summarizes the purpose of places of worship in the following words. Surely the first house founded for mankind is that at Becca, abounding in blessings and a guidance for all peoples. Chapter 3, verse 97. So what is the need of places for worship? All faiths have needed a focal point where people could get together to gain knowledge, perform acts of worship and propagate the belief, whichever that might be. Hmm. The word mosque is from the word, um, and being Muslims, being voice of Islam, the word mosque is from the Arabic word masjid, which is derived from sajda, meaning prostration. Hence, a place where one prostrates. The name synagogue comes from the Greek word 
um, synagin, which means to bring together. In the Hebrew language, it is also known as beta tefila. Um, I, I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly. If I did, <laughs> fantastic. If I didn't, if I didn't, please accept my sincerest apologies. Oh, the house of prayer, the Greek word ecclesia from which the word church is derived, was originally used to denote a gathering of people. Just as schools are needed for education, pharmacies for dispensing medicine, and banks for financial dealings, places of worship create are created out of a need, the need to have a place where people could shift their focus from their, holy, uh, from their worldly distractions and concentrate on their religious activities, or to find that equilibrium that they always tend to miss when they're in the in the in the worldly world in a place of solace a place of quiet a place where they can actually hear themselves thinking worship does not require a specific style of building but having central areas to carry out religious activities provides a focal point for gathering the masses preaching knowledge building a community and finding strength in worshiping together and the last sentence brother as I want to come to it I said building a community mm. and finding strength in worshiping together meaning congregation yeah now isn't that one of the um benefits mm. of having a place of worship I mean I'm going to use um I'm going to use the complex we're setting in the moment Hmm. We're about to have inauguration tomorrow yeah. of uh, the House of Victories. The buzz outside oh, is crazy. It's amazing, isn't it? It's crazy. I came here last night. I'm like, wow, what is my, happening here? My, my daughter texted me earlier saying, Dad, is it really happening? To, is, is it opening tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, yeah. She goes, what does it look like? I said, it's beautiful. She goes, I'm looking forward to it actually coming. People have missed yeah, yeah. going to a place of worship because it's not just a place of worship. And that's it. And that's the key thing. It's not just a place of worship. It's a lot more. It's actually, um, it created, the, and I'm going to use an example of the, the, the mosque that we are sitting in at the moment or, or the, the, the building attached to it. It created a void because we couldn't use it. Suddenly there was this vacuum mm, in mm, our lives mm. because then we had to look for other places to go to. Yeah. And the other places just weren't the same <laughs> as this place. <laughs> It's your local mosque, isn't it? That's right. That's, that's right. I mean, it's 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 home. It's your second home. It's, yeah. it's where you belong. Yeah. That, that's and every time like. you drive past, you think, okay, maybe tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. That's and tomorrow has come. Tomorrow, <laughs> inshallah. God and, and you know, and but it's that buzz. As when when as soon as you know, we were discussing this topic yesterday, and I thought to myself, and on, on the way in today, that that uh, on Friday prayers, the buzz was different. Mm. Of course, on Friday prayers is always a buzz, but excitement. but you know, normal after after the prayers, suddenly the car park becomes empty, everyone's <laughs> going back, but the car park kind of stayed full, yeah. and people are still about. Yeah. People are looking to assist in helping to kind of finish the project so things can be ready for uh, His Holiness to come and 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 to inaugurate uh, and and open. And the, this actually, look, this this goes back if you read the narrations of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. If you read the history of the early Muslims, it wasn't just a place of worship. I mean, you've probably come across that one narration where the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he comes into the mosque and he sees different groups sitting there. That's right, yes. So he saw one group of people who were indulged in the worship of God Almighty, yes. But then you saw another group where they were 
you know, being educated. They were teachers. They were learning from each other, and they're having discussions and and debates and and whatnot. So, but there was there was knowledge being imparted to 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 the attendees, and that's where the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him sat down. This is where um, he he joined that group, and it was from that time on that it was a central place. If you go, I'm not sure. In in the subcontinent, for example, or even in the Middle East, or in these Muslim majority countries, the reason why you have that facility of a mosque in in every neighborhood basically is so that people have that sense of community, that sense of belonging, that sense of neighborhood and brotherhood, and you can find out. I mean, we've said this here so many times. Yeah, you come for prayer, of course, yes, but one one kind of um reason why congregational prayer especially for men has been made mandatory and there's extra more blessings attached to it when you go to the mosque is so that you find out apart from the worship you find out what is happening in the neighborhood right you if there's anybody who is not well who doesn't come to the mosque i mean me as an imam i i i see that in the mosque as well if I know that there are certain people who are regular or they come once or twice a week or they have specific prayers that they can attend based on their schedule, based on their work, you know, if they're out of the country or not, um, then I know I will see them on that day. I, would, I know that I, they, they you know, everybody has a certain place to sit as well. You know, some, some people, they like that corner, they like that corner, they like the first row, they like that position in the first row. So when you don't see someone, you're naturally intrigued. Hmm, let me go check up on him. Let me go check and find out if if everything is all right. And you, sometimes you're absolutely right. The family is not feeling well. They're ill. The kids are not feeling well. Or somebody, something happened in the family. You know, it could be good and bad things, of course. I mean, if, if there's like a wedding happening or a birth or whatever, then you will find out. So that's one of the reasons why... Um, or one of the side effects, you know, the positive side effects mm. of, of having a mosque and having that congregational prayer in the mosque. The earlier mosques, the earliest mosque at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, they weren't solid structures. No. They were um, thatched, mm. single, single layer of thatch with poles. Um, and the whole point was to create a simple clean place yeah. um, of congregation of people with like-mindedness hmm. when people who are like-minded and get together in a room what happens suddenly the level hmm. of discussion the the mindset and the environment that you are sitting in yeah. it changes of course it raises and I'm talking people and of course I'm talking from a positive perspective but if you look at it the other way around, if people who are of a negative mindset yeah. or people who are of mischief in mind and they get together in a room, yeah. what happens? The environment in the room changes in accordance yeah, with yeah, yeah. the people who are collectively meeting. That's the purpose of a mosque mm. where like-minded people who all want to do one thing, to connect with God Almighty. Yeah. They're all seeking. They're all seeking and they're worshipping the one God. Hmm. All people always ask the Kaaba, the the in Holy Mecca, hmm. that defines the unity, the oneness of God. 
Hence why they circle it. It's that, you know, it's it and they're facing towards yeah. it um, from all directions. And I, 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 I had this conversation with my father when he came back from the pilgrimage. And uh, and he says, I don't think. I have and he and he did it in his early 70s mm-hmm. when he went to the pilgrimage. He says in his 70 years, he goes, he can't think of a time when so many people together yet there weren't so many people together because yeah. they were all one yeah. he goes he, you know you read about it uh, you discuss it you watch it he goes but until you're there it's not the same it ain't it's not put it into words isn't it no it's crazy so my again personal opinion yes without a shadow of a doubt we need places of worship to keep faith because firstly having to see something yeah. attracts you and anything that attracts you to the notion of God Almighty mm. is a plus definitely so imagine a place where there are no buildings of faith none if there's no churches there's no mosques there's nothing it's just houses and commercial buildings just imagine that yeah. you can't imagine it no because it would be a bizarre thing because it just wouldn't happen mm. there is a reason why so many different faiths over the past thousands of years have all chosen to have a building mm. and all of them are different in the way they're designed in the way they look in the way um they ooze attraction yeah now, the fact that, you know, religion has been around for 6,000 years and every single religion has chosen to have a building must mean, as Ahmadi Muslims, we believe in all, in all the, the prophets of different times and different geographical locations, that clearly over the years, the fact that there's been so many different buildings, it must have an impact, hence why they continue to be there. Hmm. Now, the fact what happens inside these buildings is a different argument, is a different discussion to be had. Because... There's two ways to look at it. Exactly. Because yeah. the structure itself, I think, is a must. Hmm. But what you're looking for and what you do, as you so rightly just said, you go in and you see in the corner a few people who are maybe praying or trying to pray but they're getting distracted by the tourists who are coming in. <laughs> and and they're not able to find that peaceful moment. Yeah. Or you can go to um you know another place of worship where people come to congregate and it becomes a community center. Yeah. It's a mosque, but it's a community center. People forget to tend to then they lose that yeah. that, that they lose then they forget what the place of worship is. So I think there's two discussions to be had there. One is what happens inside a place of worship and what happens when you when you put a building up hmm. and what it what it shows what it emphasizes two different things and they do they are intertwined because you will never have a place where you can go to in a building to practice your faith because if the buildings wasn't there in the first place hmm. you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to do that to do that 
Make sense? Makes sense. Now, I want to kind of uh, ask you this question. The Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, once said, there will, be, there will come a time where mosques will be full of people. Hmm. And something, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing. Um, I'm sure you will correct me. Uh, but, and people will be talking about faith, but these places will be, um, will, will not have, God will not be present. Empty of guidance. Empty of guidance. What does that mean? And relate it to this question of having a mosque. Because hmm. this to me defines why mosques are important in relation to having a faith. Yes. You're, you're absolutely right. Look, um, you can have the most beautiful building. And mm-hmm. this is something I'm... I'm, I'm uh, Piggybacking on the words of His Holiness Masrur Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand, that he says not just um, to people within the community, but also to people outside the community. For example, when you have a mosque opening, right, there's usually two parts uh, to the opening. One is addressed to the neighbors. One is um, for the people who live around that mosque to Maybe welcome them to introduce him to what a mosque is, and I believe we're going to play one of the one, a short clip as well about yes. uh, the objectives of constructing a mosque. Why do we build a mosque? But then the second part of that is talking to the congregation who will use that mosque as their place of worship. And usually, what he says at these um, inaugurations is that if the beauty of a mosque is not the building. The beauty of a mosque is not the chandeliers that you find in them. The beauty of a mosque or a place of worship is not the the you know the the, the beautification, the the minarets, the the domes, and and what have you. The beauty of a mosque is in the worshiper. So if you have a mosque where people are filling the mosque, filling the rows of that mosque, and they are trying to fulfill the purpose of why that mosque was built, meaning for the worship of Allah, for the worship of God, and for the worship of God alone, not using it as a place of where they can gossip, not using it as a place where they can backbite about people or or make plans against the government and whatnot, which happens around the world then that is something that makes the mosque beautiful. So when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when he was talking about a time being uh, in the future where you will have big, beautiful mosques and they will be filled with people, but they will be bereft or or empty of guidance. Uh, Mischief will go from them and mischief will return to them. He was talking about this age where, again, in different parts of the world, you will have the most beautiful, gorgeous buildings. But I'll I'll be honest with you. When I went to some of these places, <coughs> you had like, what, 10 people in there, 15 people in there, 20 people in there praying. And their capacity is for 10,000 plus. Mm. I'll tell you that. But at one given time, you literally had a handful of people compared to how many it should be. Now, again, that's that's not a problem. This happens everywhere, right? The second thing is, and this is something that His Holiness um, says over and over again, there's a fear 
isn't it? Yes. There's a fear that you, what's going to happen? What are they doing in there? Hmm. What is happening in there? What kind of sermons is the imam giving? And again, unfortunately, in the past, we've had incidences here, and not just here in the UK, but around the world, where the imam has used his position, his pulpit, to spew hatred. Yep. To talk about things that he shouldn't be talking about. Mm. Instead of cohesion, we're talking about um, the enemy, us and them. Mm. And instead of compatibility, we were talking about the differences. Clerics who politicize yes. Islam. Exactly. And the beautiful response when His Holiness, uh, may Allah strengthen his hand, was questioned. He says, well, our Friday sermon is live. You feel free to come at any time yeah. you want and join. Yeah. Come and sit and listen. We have nothing to hide. Mm. You know, a lot of places, um, a lot of people have developed a fear um, of a building and in 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 since 9/11 i mean how many times we've spoken about this and it's not look look i think the reason why when we when we started to uh, think about this topic and the reason why we we actually are talking about mm-hmm. this today is that this is something across the board maybe not so much in in, in the religion of islam because mm-hmm. i know that there is a big huge trend of even the younger generation trying to make their way to the mosque and trying to build that relationship with the mosque but as you said the building itself having um a purpose and then being associated to a religious dogma a yes. religious ideology mm. a religious set a community set of values and what not that's something that people have have a problem with these days it does and this reminds me of the um, i remember it was in fact me you and uh, brother hanif when we had this discussion about uh, when switzerland they banned the building of minarets yeah and uh, and it was quite strange because uh, um if you actually go to the, the if you go to the planning um um uh, wording hmm. they have actually uh, banned the word minaret yeah and a lot of people um and and switzerland is famous for having clock towers <laughs> <laughs> so i thought it was a, okay so you're banning a minaret but you can't define a minaret yeah put a clock on it it's but, you, <laughs> <laughs> but you're allowed to build a clock tower so where where does the again there was no thinking yeah. the point was they had hadn't thought what they were doing yeah. because to them the notion of having a minaret and the call of adhan the call to prayer yeah, yeah. to them that just meant oh that's islam and that that means and suddenly from there they went on to immigration and refugees and and again the notion was and the narrative was a political hmm. narrative which had nothing to do with the religion, yeah. the beautiful religion of Islam. However, based on that, they said it will um, it will spoil our skyline if there's a minaret. Well, and and my question again is, what's the difference between a minaret and a clock tower? It's a tall building, yeah, with with a or, or a lighthouse, or anything which is tall. And this, <laughs> I've heard this argument before. It doesn't fit into our skyline. Exactly. Have you seen? Yes. Have you seen a mosque or a church in the middle mm-hmm. of a big, huge skyline? It looks amazing. Yep. What is so wrong about that? I have no problem with that. I, I mean, again, as far as the mosque is concerned, you have these Muslim majority countries, Middle Eastern countries, even the mosque here in London. How many churches and how many? Like, you know, uh, what would you call that? Um, Temples, Tem- not temples. The 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 gurdwaras. Not the gurdwaras. Another word for church. What was that? Oh, cathedrals. Uh, cathedrals, exactly. Yeah. 
uh, Spain. You were talking about That's Spain, right. uh, Valencia. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's gorgeous. Mm. And why not? It's a piece of history. It's a piece of architecture. It, it is a piece of spirituality within that. Tell me world. one person, and I know everyone who knows one person who's not a Muslim and who's gone to Turkey and doesn't come back and talk about the Blue Mosque. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, I mean, Turkey, I think my, uh, and do call they it have and a correct very me. good balance there. I'll, they I'll do, be very but, honest with but you. Again, I recently, I'm not getting into the details I recently there, read a dis- this statistic. Wise, Gorgeous. Um, statistically, uh, the the largest number, the, the the highest number of mosques in the world mm. is in Turkey because there's one on every single corner. Yeah. Um, again, um, it's something I read. I'm not saying it's factual, but it is what was written. But because Turkey does have mosques and mosques and mosques, yeah. and, and history, historically, you know, the Ottoman Empire they built um, mosques and mosques and mosques. <laughs> it was a huge empire, yeah. and they built mosques everywhere. Yeah. Um, but again, if one was to look at history, I, I have been to, um, I went to a mosque, and I guess not used as a mosque anymore, in Beijing, which was built over a thousand wow. years ago. Um, you will find a mosque everywhere. True. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And 99.9%, in fact, I don't know, I have never been to a mosque which hasn't fitted into the environment. And in fact, has had a positive impact. Yeah. on the local community and the society True. where these mosques are built. And, and again, I can only use, I mean, I, I'm belong, belonging to an Amdi Muslim community. Um, I can't think of a mosque that has been constructed by uh, the community and which has not benefited the local community. Yeah. In fact, you know, it, it's what you will find is every time the community builds a mosque or a community center somewhere over a period of time, that area thrives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah? Take my word. Take, take my a word. look at London. Exactly. Take my word what for it. What was Morden in 2003, yeah. please? That's it. I mean, it, it, was a, it was this Morden and Mitcham was the hub of far-right nationalism, for yeah, out loud. Exactly. When this, this community centre was built, uh, the, you know, the far-right nationalists were at Morden Civic Centre. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they were opposing the construction of this building. Um, but if same, if you ever go to the mosque in Bradford, it was very similar there. Um, in fact, the, within the community, we have always built mosques in areas that need. Yeah, there is a need of the local community to ha- to create some kind of hub or a community center. Yeah, and the and uh, we as a community have always, always, and it's um, always the same story, isn't it? Yep, hundred percent. You have so much opposition in the beginning. Mm. And people are like, I don't know what they're going to do. There's going to be so much noise. They're going to blast us on from the, yeah. from the minarets. And it's going to be chaos. And God knows what they're going to plan. And then you open up the doors. Yep. And you invite them to coffee and cake and done li- dinners and lunches and question answer sessions. You have debates. You have dis- non-debates, dis- yeah. discussions. You learn from each other. You talk to each other. Yep. And I have seen it over and over again. Even like, you know, you were talking about far right. In, in Germany, for example, in, in the east of Germany. So you have Dresden, you have um, Berlin, you know, the, the, what was it, right. the Khadija Mosque That's or, or right. yes. Mosque. It was in the heart of, of the east where literally you had people with that kind of thinking still. Yes. And um, th- there's one point I want to clarify, and there's a myth and a misconception. One thing, please know this, and you can hear it loud and clear from the Amdi Muslim community. There is this allegation that always gets and the misconception and the thought process that people have 
that the government funds mosques. I'm sure there are certain mm. governments who do fund them. Oh, yes. They, there they are. Do, they they're do. foreign funded. Yeah. Within the Amdi Muslim community, we don't get funding from any organization except from within. It's not that we don't get it. We, we choose not to take it. We don't take it. Yes. Yes. We get offered, but we do not take a single penny from outside of the community. All the mosques built around the world. That's yeah. not just in UK. Yeah. That is around the world that all the mosques that are built and the community centers that are built by the Amdi Muslim community are funded by the congregation. Yes. The people, the worshippers, people like me, Brother Raza, Brother Akib, our producers, people who are listening, people who are members of this community, from children to women to old people to men, people from all walks of life. They make sacrifices, financial sacrifices, and they pay into funds which creates these mosques everywhere around the world. Hence why we are not um, we, we are not obliged to look after anyone's interest except God's. That's it. We are not... Um, um, and I see... We, we don't get funded subject to. What, what you, exactly, that's subject to. That's, that's a big um, that, that, know, that's thing that needs to be addressed. And I think, well, look, when, when, you, when you were mentioning the, the narration of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that a time will come where this will happen... You, you, you are basically. I, I'm not going to use the word selling your faith, but again, when, when you, when, when we turning religion into a business. Yeah. So there is an ulterior motive. There is, uh, uh, you know, a catch to it. Yes. There's T's and C's attached to it. That's right. And this is something that if you pay for it yourself, first of all, you know it's yours. Hmm. I belong to this place. I've. I've contributed to it. I mean, not that it's any worth, but you will treat it in a way as if it's yours. I mean, if I, for example, you rent a car and you have your own car, it's two different things, mm. isn't it? Yes, of course it I is. I mean, you, you don't treat that rental car the way that you would treat your own car. So that's the same with the mosque. If I'm paying for it, if I am not, not paying, but I'm contributing to it, if I'm sacrificing my wealth for it, for the house of God, thinking that this is something that me and my, my children and my future generations will benefit from. Mm. They will get closer to God Almighty. They will learn spirituality. They will come closer to their creator in this place. Then you have a whole different attachment to that feeling, to that building, to that mosque, uh, if other than, you know, then it would be sponsored by some government. You, you a, a point comes to mind. I'm, I'm going to go and play that audio before we play the audio. There's something that you just said, you talked about people getting together and the purpose of the mosque. And it's something we discussed uh, earlier that um, the point of the congregation is that we always talk about you uh, should be careful about the company you keep. Mm. And the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, Hazim Azaghulam, um, uh, on whom be peace, he says, um, the second thing to remember, this is, he was talking about listing the thing and this kind of, yeah. came to mind um, I'll, I will list the first one later on but he said the thing to remember is that purification of morals and of soul cannot take place without close contact with the person who is pure Yes, and we know that mosque is a place where you look for purity and we're not talking well in fact uh, spirit from from ethic, morals, um, values, yeah. spirituality. 
it it's I, I it will it guaranteed it will rub off. Yes, it does. And on that, I actually I have a personal example of that. Please. Now I'm not going to mention that person's name because it's just I mean I'm sure he will be embarrassed or not. But I have tried this not once, maybe three to four times myself. There was a specific. Um, he was he was my senior, right? So when I was in Canada in in the missionary school, he was my senior, and he wasn't like if you would look at him, he would uh, you would be playing basketball. He was a very athletic guy. He would joke around all the time. But he was basically, he was like an older brother to, to all of us. I mean, me and my classmates, he, he was our mentor, basically. And whenever he would be in the mosque, so whenever we would go to the mosque and we would happen to walk in at the same time or, you know, uh, the, 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 the prayer would start and we would both get up. I've tried it myself. Every time I stood next to him, bro, there was something. Hmm. There was something that made me emotional. It made me enjoy my prayer. It just, there was some connection with it. And I'm not saying that he's like some old wise man who would stand there and start crying and all of these things. No, it's just, there was something about it. And I mean, I've had this before, of course. I'm not saying that this is the, he was the only person. No, but that impact that you, that you mentioned, it rubs off. Hmm. It is so true. It is so true. I'm glad you mentioned um, this this story, this incident, because we have with us online Mr. Vakar Ahmadi, and hmm. he has he has made uh, every time I, I I I'm on Twitter or anywhere else on social media, I see he's rubbed off on you. He's rubbed. <laughs> he, he's rubbing off on 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 the teaching profession in a massive way. He is making a huge difference, especially in A level, the lives of A level students. So I want to welcome and say Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you, brother Vakar. Assalamualaikum, uh, Ian. How are you? Uh, always good. Um, you're making waves in the in the A level fraternity. Your book, <laughs> by the grace of God, is is doing fantastic. Um, I actually have uh, uh, friends whose children um, are studying RE, and they actually mentioned you. And I said, I know him. <laughs> All right, guilty as charged. <laughs> um, we are talking about places of worship. Um, do we need places of worship to keep faith? What's your take on that? Yeah, I think um, you've. Um, I've been listening to um, most of the the last hour in your discussion with uh, Imam Raza Raza, and um, I think you, you. There's nothing really to add. Um, really, I think you've covered the topic really comprehensively. Um, I think many people do feel the need for um, places of worship. I think we know from the COVID experience uh, of the last two to three years um, that uh, that is something that we, we really missed, especially I'm talking from the point of view of somebody who is a member of a faith community. Mm. Um, and I'm not um, restricting this to uh, Islam uh, or to the mosque. Uh, I think we found that, um, of course, there was this explosion of virtual congregations yeah. uh, during uh, the pandemic. Um, and there were many benefits to that. I think obviously the um, the, the whole sort of um, concept of, of community um, was 
very much uh, kept alive hmm. and, and, and was thriving um, and, and to a large extent still is. But I think what if you ask any uh, any person uh, what they would prefer, whether they would like to uh, stick to virtual platforms to connect with people of uh, fellow members of a faith or whether they'd like to go to an actual physical place of worship, I think many people go for the latter. Yeah. Um, as you've correctly mentioned, you know, it's about connecting with others at a human level, um, obviously places of worship like a mosque, serve multiple purposes. We know that in the time of our beloved prophet, peace be upon him, you know, mosque wasn't just a place of worship for Salah, it was also a social hub. You know, it was a, a center point, it was a meeting point um, where many meetings were held, where guests were received from outside of Medina, hmm. um, not just Muslims, but people who came from other faith uh, communities as well, notably the Christians from the Jiran. Um So, you know, it served a number of different purposes in the time of the Prophet, and it still does today. Um, I know that you talked quite extensively about uh, a, a major event that we're all excited and uh, looking, looking forward to tomorrow, uh, our Peace Symposium. Uh, the opening of a of a of a, a new uh, mosque, or part of uh, uh, the Bethlehem Mosque, I should say, and I think just the uh, the effort that's gone into this building and the amount of financial sacrifices that people have made to see tomorrow realised and come to fruition, I think, is a testament and and confirms and proves uh, the important place that, that a mosque has for for Muslims. Um, so I think certainly there is um, it has, it has a huge part to play in the life of believer. And I think there is a hadith or tradition of the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, where he said that a believer is in a mosque is like a fish in water. Worst of that effect, Imam Raza, please correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. Um, but it, I think it just emphasizes the the central role that a place of worship plays in the lives, uh, lives yeah. of believers. Now, Brother Vakar, in uh, the 2021 census um, that we've had, and uh, there was something interesting that came to the front, and that is that there's fewer and fewer people who identify as as religious. But at the same time, the number for those choosing no faith, they, that rose as well. Why do you think that was? What What is happening that we are getting away further and further from people to to you know who choose religious religion who believe to themselves to be religious or simply saying you know what no faith for me no need thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a sixty-four thousand dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, I don't. I don't think it's down to a single factor. Sure. Uh, I think there are a combination of facets that uh, that sort of have contributed to, as you correctly said, the the declining numbers of uh, Christians. I think that's certainly true, um, and rising numbers of those who uh, do not affiliate themselves to any religion. Um, I think we are obviously seeing society becoming more and more secular, uh, more and more materialistic. I think we've seen a number of changes in social norms, you know, things that were once not acceptable have now become completely acceptable and vice versa. Yeah. Um, I think for the first time that I observed, there was a real uh, active campaign by non-religious 
organisations leading up to the census for people who are not religious to make sure that they actually declared themselves as not religious. Um, I think maybe one of the biggest factors um, has been people's being disillusioned with particular religious institutions, for example, the church, yeah. uh, which has been hit by various scandals in, in the last few years and decades, uh, such as various abuse scandals. So I think trust or people's trust in religious figures has, has really uh, declined. Um, I think generally speaking, you know, as far as the media is concerned, religion tends to get a lot of bad press. Um, but I don't think we, we have the full picture, uh, even from the, the latest census data. There is obviously, there is an option on the, on the census uh, form for people to opt out of mm. answering certain questions, including the question about whether you are religious. Um, and it is, might not seem like a lot, but I think there was 6% of people um, in, in England and Wales did not actually answer that question. So whether that 6%, you know, could cover people who potentially are religious, who might have a faith, but preferred not to disclose it for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, but I do think that um, even with those sort of headline statements of Christianity now for the first time becoming a minority religion in the UK, um, I think faith is still strong. Um, we still are very much a multi-faith society. Um, we did see although they weren't too significant, but they're still important, um, increases in the number of people who describe themselves as Muslim and also as Hindu, so those figures did go up slightly. Um, a year before the census, uh, there was um, some research um, conducted in London by a uh, Christian think tank called Theos, uh, in which they found that two-thirds of Londoners do call themselves religious. Um, which is the highest proportion uh, than elsewhere in the country. Um, so in terms of statistics, you know, the picture seems to be a bit of a messy one, but I wouldn't say that religion is, is dead. Uh, I think we have seen from COVID uh, and also from more recent data that uh, faith has a huge part to play in the lives of many people. Now, Brother Bukat, keeping this in mind, when, you, when, when it comes to RE lessons, how, how is religion perceived by the youngsters as well? And also, I think, look, this is, this is me just asking based on what I hear in the news and on the social media. Are there parents, do you f face more difficulties now from the parents who say that, you know what, my child doesn't need RE? Or question the 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 reason and and the effectiveness or the necessity of 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 their child having that lesson. No, quite the opposite. Is it? Uh, wow. In my in my experience, when I've had the, which is one of the great joys of my job, is speaking to parents on parents' evenings and meeting them in person when they visit the school, hmm. uh, when they get feedback from their children about what they're covering in RE, actually say to me, "I wish I was in your RE lesson. Wow. I wish I." RE, you know, it wasn't. It doesn't sound like the same as it was when I was um, at school. Um, it seems to be a lot more relevant. Um, the students love the subjects. I'm very fortunate that a large number of my students choose to take up the subject at GCSE and A level. Um, I, I think they do see uh, the, the the great relevance 
of, of faith today and belief um, that, that religion continues to play a powerful role in, in the public and private lives or so many. I think the census data and other that we've referred to already this evening shows that religion belief is central to the lives of so many people. Um, so, you know, we talked about the pandemic and how, you know, I think levels of faith did uh, increase to, to a large extent. I think the, in March 2020, I think when we first went into lockdown in the UK, Google reported a huge surge in the number of people searching for the word prayer. Hmm. Um, and that included many non-religious people. Um, I, I think we have seen that, you know, in terms of, again, I can mainly talk about my own experiences, um, that, that students really do value the subject. They are enriched by it uh, and it prepares them for, you know, a, a multi-faith and a multi-secular world. Uh, to become you know, global citizens. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I think you know, in my experience, it's all been very positive. Um, I, I don't face the struggle of having to sell my subject. I don't really find that. I know that might be a struggle for others. I think are we generally, we do have a bit of a crisis situation in terms of there is, there is a national shortage of, of specialist RE teachers. Um, I think just a couple of stats that might be of interest. So 51% of the total number of secondary teachers of RE and most of the teaching timetable delivering a different subject, which is a lot higher than teachers of other subjects. And, and 25% of RE lessons are taught by teachers with no post A-level qualification themselves. So they haven't mm. got a degree, for example, in theology or RS. And I think pupils do deserve better. I think from a young person's point of view, when they see that the subject is largely taught by somebody who's not a specialist, it sounds like a poor message about the importance of the subject. Yeah. Um, but, you know, personally speaking, obviously, obviously I'm, I'm biased, but at the same <laughs> time, I think it's true um, that RE is, you know, one of the most personally enriching um, academic subjects uh, in the curriculum. I mean, it's fundamental to life. Yeah. I think RE is essentially all about people, and people will never be out of date, will they? Absolutely. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, yeah, my, my experience has always been very positive. Um, but I think it would help if there was a bit more support given at a governmental level um, in terms of funding and support for, for RE special, because I think young children deserve it. Yeah. And the world needs it as well for us to become more accepting uh, as the world becomes more and more pluralistic. Uh, I think RE has a huge uh, role to play Indeed. in creating positive citizens. Wonderful. Inshallah. Uh, Brother Vakar Ahmed, it's always a great pleasure to, to talk to you. Jazakallah. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, here on the Draft Time Show and to you as well. Have a great weekend. Have a great um, evening ahead. And uh, hope maybe we'll see each other tomorrow at the uh, inauguration. Inshallah, look forward to it. Thanks Azarkan. for having me. Azarkan. Azarkan. Let's go listen to His Holiness before we do a quick end. Uh, what he said about uh, the opening of a mosque in 2012. Keeping all of this in view, when an Ahmadi Muslim constructs a mosque, he does so with two overarching and primary objectives. First, he tries to fulfill his obligation of worshipping God Almighty with even greater resolve than ever before. Secondly, he also endeavours to fulfill the rights of his fellow man and to serve humanity 
with an ever increasing determination and passion. An Ahmadi Muslim will always try to distance himself from all types of disorder. So it is with complete conviction and confidence that I say to all of you that the only message that you will ever hear from an Ahmadi mosque is a call urging people towards God Almighty and a call to fulfill the rights of God's creation. Apart from these two noble objectives, you will hear no other call for message or message conveyed from an Ahmadi mosque. Indeed, this particular mosque has been named Darul Aman, and this literally means a place of complete peace and security. It is a place of sanctuary where whoever enters will be liberated from all fears and distress. And I would also like to inform you that the status uh, of the mosque as a place of refuge is not limited only to those who enter it, but in wider terms, it means that even those who live in the surrounding areas will always be safe and will never have any reason to fear the worshippers of the mosque. And not only will the local people be able to live safely and peacefully, but they will also find that every Ahmadi Muslim will stand shoulder to shoulder with them in an effort to establish a society, uh, establish a society filled with peace, love, and compassion. With that, uh, I'd like to thank Sayyid Tahdi Hassan and Sofia Amir. Thank you to Brother Raza. Thank you to Brother Akib in Tech. Thank you to you for listening. Please remember us in your prayers. Please forgive any shortcomings. Until we meet again, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.